passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Uh, my name is Jordan. I'm one of our pastors here. It is uh, good to be with you this morning as we continue. Uh, I guess I shouldn't say continue. We're starting a new sermon series uh, called Broken Vessels. And we're going to be looking over the next several weeks at various uh, people from uh, the biblical narrative and uh, how God uses them in spite of their imperfections for his glory. And uh, I, I think one of the encouraging things as I've been preparing for this series has been to see that no matter our past, no matter our presence, uh, God can use us for his glory and for the good of those who are around us. And I think the operative word there is can, that God can use us for his glory and for the good of others around us. Because as we'll see this morning, it's not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed that God will use us to be a conduit of God's grace to others in the world. Uh, it means that we have to take steps of obedience. It means that we have to uh, step out in faith in a way that oftentimes is hard and challenging and sometimes painful. And that's what we're going to see this morning in the story of Esther. We're going to be looking at Esther this morning. Esther actually makes it abundantly clear to us that many times it is easier for us to go the opposite way of obedience. It's, it's far easier to take the path to not walk in obedience, to just blend in, to just live a life like everyone else. And that's one of the reasons why I think Esther is, is particularly compelling for us today. Because even though we are separated by thousands of miles and, and thousands of years from the context of Esther, it, it actually has a lot of similarities to the context that we find ourselves in today. Esther tells us the story of this Jewish girl who lives in the midst of a hostile empire in a culture that stands against the values of her faith. And yet surprisingly, the story of Esther does not start with this blazing example of obedience and faith, but compromise. Esther actually has a far, a far more in common with the culture of Persia than she has in differences. And I think that's all too often where we find ourselves today. That there might be areas where we say, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. Uh, and yet there, there are other areas where our priorities and the, uh, are just like the priorities of our culture or the priorities of our culture have shaped us. And, you know, we might stand firm on issues of sexual ethics. And yet you look at our time and, and it seems like we have far more in common with our culture's fascination with entertainment, money, consumerism, individualism, the lure of power, any number of things, then we have differences from our culture. And it's in that context of compromise that I think the story of Esther is so very helpful for us 
A lot of times churches will, as we look at how do we live faithfully in a culture that is different than what God's people are called to be, a lot of times churches will run to the example of Daniel, and that's a a great example. Daniel finds himself in pagan Babylon, and he refuses to bend the knee to the the pagan culture of that day, and then resolves to stand for his faith. And yet, as, as good as Daniel is as an example, one of the challenges of Daniel is that we might not have all that much in common with him. Mike Cosper writes this really helpful book called Faith Among the Faithless, and he has this to say about Daniel and Esther for us today. He says this, there's a problem with looking to Daniel. Most of us aren't a Daniel. As much as we recognize that our culture is in decline, we also kind of like it. Christians in general consume as much mass media and are as addicted to pornography, are as consumeristic, and are as obsessed with social media as the rest of the world. Esther, in contrast to Daniel, is disconnected from her heritage of faith, out of touch with the practices that marked her people as distinct from the surrounding world, who nevertheless found a way back to her identity as one of God's people and is one who might illustrate a path forward for us as well. Esther's story is an invitation to those whose faith, convictions, and morality are less than we wish they were. I love that quote. Esther is a crucial book Because as we consider her life of compromise, if we are willing to listen, we will see a mirror for each and every one of us of all of the ways that we similarly have bought into the deceitful lies of our culture. Now you might be thinking, well, that's not me. I, I, I haven't compromised. And in some areas that might be true. But at the same time, each and every one of us certainly has some areas of priority that have far more in common with the world around us than they do with the way of Jesus. And so as we jump into Esther this morning, I just want us to ask, how might God awaken us to that truth? How might he call us to a greater level of obedience? Let's consider that from the book of Esther. We're going to break the book of Esther into three general movements. But before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, as we approach your word, we ask now that you would transform us through your word, even as you have done for countless generations. We ask that you would help us to see through the story of Esther, the refining and purifying work of your spirit. And that spirit's work might be painful and risky, but it's always worth it. God, I ask that you would make us into a people who live lives that are defined not primarily by the cultural tastes around us, but by your priorities and your passions. Help us now, we ask. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you might be saying, okay, Esther's 10 chapters long. Uh, how on earth are we going to make it through uh, this morning? Uh, that's, that's a good question. We're going um, to try to speed through it uh, this morning. And before we do that, I want to take a few moments to just kind of lay out the background, the context of Esther, because it's important for grasping the significance of what's taking place. So Esther opens by telling us the time and the location. It takes place in the year 483 BC in the wintertime capital of the Persian Empire, and that is a place called Susa. 
Persia was the predominant empire of the day. It had ruled most of the known world for the last 75 years. And Ahasuerus, who is this king that we'll encounter a number of times, just a a fun little uh, piece of information about him. His name is actually Xerxes. Uh, Ahasuerus is actually just this Hebrew pun for headache. So he's King Headache, if you were, that's just a free bit of information there for you. Uh, Xerxes is a lot easier to say than Ahasuerus. Uh, He reigns over a whole swath of the world from northern Africa all the way to modern day Asia. Now significantly, about 50 years before the time of Esther, the grandfather of Ahasuerus, this guy named Cyrus, issued this decree that allowed the people of Israel to return to Jerusalem, to return to the land of Israel. In other words, the exile was over, this this horrific time in Israel's history. By this time of Esther, the temple has been rebuilt. And you might be saying, well, what exactly does that have to do with our our, our, our sermon this morning? It reminds us that the people we are dealing with this morning, people like Esther and Mordecai, the Jews who still live in Susa, are those who chose to stay behind. In other words, all of the spiritually mature, all of the people who took their faith seriously, left Susa 50 years earlier. And the best way to describe those people who still live in Susa would be lukewarm. They haven't rejected their Jewish heritage. And yet at the same time, they also haven't rejected the benefits of living in the pagan capital of the world either. And it's in that context that Esther chapter 1 actually tells us about uh, the greatness of Hasherus. Ahasuerus, this king, throws a six-month-long party for the leaders of his expansive empire. It's almost certainly to gain some support here for his upcoming invasion of Greece. I said that Esther opens in the year 483 BC, just a couple years later. If you're a world history buff, buff, we see Xerxes invades Greece. Um, He's defeated at the Battle of Thermopylae in the year 480. So that's right before, or right, this takes place right before that battle. Now, Ahasuerus is, is vain. He's incredibly concerned with his own glory, and that's why he throws a 180-day-long party. I mean, that probably declares your glory to other people if you can get away with that. Esther 1 actually tells us the purpose of this party. We see this. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and then nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So the overarching purpose of this party is to prove how cool he is. He wants people to be impressed with him, and I'll be honest, a 180-day long party is, is not a terrible way to impress people, Right? After this party, Ahasuerus actually throws a second party. He throws a party now, not for the leaders of his empire, but now he throws a party for the people of Susa and says, hey, you know, you got to see people for the last six months having a party. Now you get to have a party too. And the wine flowed freely. And at one point during this party, while he's raving drunk, he decides that another way to prove his glory is to show off his wife, his queen, Vashti. And you can um, imagine um, 
fill in the details of why he's bringing his wife out to see everyone to, to see her beauty. Now, shockingly, she says no, which was unheard of. And, and so he, he's attempting to show his power and his greatness by forcing his queen to come out and display herself to everyone, and it backfires. She says no, and so in order to save face, he actually issues an, a, a, an edict for the entire empire that says, hey, just to let you know, Vashti's being taken care of. She's never going to see my face again. Now, just a side note, if you're going to issue an edict in that day and age to your entire empire before the internet and before cable news and before newspapers, you know, people in India and Ethiopia, the two furthest stretches of the empire, probably didn't know that Vashti disgraced him. But if you send out an edict that gets read in every town saying, my wife disgraced me, but I'm taking care of her, it actually probably backfires and shows how inept of a king he actually is. Now, after this edict, he actually heads off to Greece. For a few years, he's defeated by the Greeks. And so, you know, defeats are are piling up right now for Xerxes. He's been embarrassed in front of his entire empire because Vashti won't come out and display herself to uh, the people of Susa. Now he's been defeated by the Greeks in this massive failure. And then we get to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2 takes place about three years after the events of chapter 1. It opens with this uh, second edict from Ahasuerus, this insecure king. In order to prove that he is still indeed powerful, still is indeed uh, dominant, he demands that all the beautiful young versions of the entire uh, empire are brought to him, placed in his harem, and those who make the cut he will sleep with, and then he'll choose which one he likes the best as his new queen. And if you're thinking at this moment, man, Xerxes is a pretty terrible person, you're following along with the story, all right? He's, He's not a great guy. You got the right impression of him. Now, at this point in Esther chapter 2, we're introduced to Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's cousin. He's also Esther's adoptive father. So his aunt and uncle, Esther's parents, died. He was significantly older than Esther, and so he serves as her father after their death. And as we look at at Mordecai in Esther chapter 2, one of the stunning things about Mordecai is just how compromised he is Spiritually, Basically, everything we see about him in Esther chapter 2 reveals spiritual compromise. Notice this in verse 5 of chapter 2. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now first, notice Mordecai's name. We would perhaps know today that Mordecai is a Jewish name, but it is only a Jewish name today because of this Mordecai. The name Mordecai actually is an homage to the Babylonian god Marduk. So, while many Jews were forced to take many pagan names in exile, you look at the book of Daniel, Daniel and his three friends take pagan names. Esther actually takes a pagan name later on, or we see the name Esther is actually a pagan name. And yet, in each of the other examples of these Jewish people with pagan names, we're also always told their Jewish Hebrew name except for Mordecai. We only know him as Mordecai in the story. More significantly, verse 5 tells us he doesn't just live in Susa, but he lives in Susa, the citadel. 
Susa was this massive city with lots of people living around the citadel or the center hub of power for the Persian Empire. If you were someone who lived in the citadel, then you were a part of the movers and shakers of the empire. You had a passionate desire to be a part of what's happening in Persia. And the text tells us that Mordecai isn't just living in Susa, but he's living in Susa, the citadel. This is all the more apparent here that this man cares deeply about the things of Persia. When we see that his cousin Esther is abducted to be a part of Xerxes' harem, and he gives her some specific instructions about her heritage. Verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. You know, when Xerxes issues this decree saying, I want all of the beautiful women of the empire to come join my harem, that would have been something you couldn't say no to. If you did, you probably would have been put to death. It would have been impossible to resist that decree. And yet, Mordecai's insistence that Esther hides her Jewishness reveals that he actually kind of wants to play the part. Now, certainly he does this to, you know, save his cousin's life. And yet, if we take a step back, there's no reason to suspect, based off of the example of Esther or the other parts of the Bible or even world history, there's no reason to suspect that Ahasuerus would have killed Esther just because she was Jewish. Ahasuerus just wouldn't have cared. It's more likely that Mordecai wants to increase her chances of winning the throne. And by extension, power, that he tells her to hide her Jewishness. Now that's the same sort of compromise that we see from Esther when we are introduced to her in this same chapter. One of the fascinating things about Esther is that you look at Esther chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 1, these two stories about Jewish people being thrust into a pagan empire, and there are a number of similarities which make the differences all the more shocking. So in Daniel chapter 1, we encounter Daniel and his friends, and they're abducted, and they're brought into this separated group of people in the the Babylonian empire, and they are forced to eat the king's food. Esther chapter 2, we see the exact same thing, that Esther is abducted. She's forced into a separated group of people in this pagan empire, Persia, and she is forced to eat the king's food. Notice the differences between their two responses. Daniel chapter one, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So Daniel is thrust in this place. He's given this food and he says, I cannot, I will not forsake my God, forsake his laws and his rules by eating this food. Compare that to Esther chapter 2. And Esther pleased him, the chief eunuch, and won his favor. And the chief eunuch quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther has no qualms with hiding her Jewishness. Esther has no qualms 
with eating the food that is provided to her. Two vastly different ways of trying to approach a pagan culture. Now, after about a year of preparation as a part of this harem, we see that Esther is at last brought before a king Ahasuerus for his night with her, and notice what she asks for. She can ask anything. Any of these women leaving the harem, going into the king, could ask for whatever they want. And then we see this in verse 15. When the term came for Esther, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Again, Daniel chapter 1, Daniel approaches the king's eunuch and says, I I want you to, to make an exception for me and my friends, and God grants them favor in the eyes of the eunuch. In contrast, we have Esther, and she has the opportunity to do whatever she wants in order to win the favor, the approval of Ahasuerus, and she doesn't rely on the Lord. She instead relies on the chief eunuch. What's going to give me my best shot to to make a good impression here with Ahasuerus? And again, she grows in favor. And Mordecai's plan, Esther's plan works. She captures the heart of Xerxes. She's the one who's chosen as the queen. Esther 3 picks up five years later, and over the next five years, we are told that Esther continues to hide her Jewish identity. That means that she would have lived like a pagan. That means that she would have completely ignored the religious purity laws of the Old Testament. She would have broken law after law after law of the Old Testament for the next five years. Now before we continue, let's just pause and consider what we might learn from the beginning of Esther's story. I think Esther is a warning, at least here. It's a warning of how easy it is for us to compromise with the world's priorities and the world's values. I find it fascinating that at this point in the story, Esther is the model picture of a Persian queen. She's exactly what Xerxes wanted from his queen. Far better than that Vashti girl. Esther plays the part of a pagan queen perfectly. Now, what's more, the text doesn't seem to indicate that that Mordecai and Esther have, have any problem with this approach. You look at the book of Daniel and his friends, and they resolve, they say, here I stand, I cannot do this, I cannot forsake my faith, even if it means putting us in the fiery furnace or the lion's den. On the contrast, you have Mordecai and Esther, who almost have this mindset of, well, this is just what you have to do when you live in Persia. I wonder how often we are the same. How many values of our culture are just considered to be the way it is in the world? You know, we don't worship a number of pagan gods like the Persians did thousands of years ago, but we also have our own pantheon of gods in our culture today. The chief god of our culture is the self. It's me that every one of us has the right to pursue our own happiness. 
to do what we want, what gives us the most joy. The idea of self-denial, a sacrilege to the God of our culture. How many of us, when we pursue the values of this false God, use this idea, the God of self, what I want more than anything else as the lens through which we make all of our decisions, whether it is our time, whether it is our finances, our activities, you name it. When you are born and raised in Susa, like Mordecai and Esther, the values of Persia are second nature. And when you are born and raised in a modern day Susa, like you and me, the values of our culture are second nature. Don't miss the message of Esther here at the beginning. It is so easy to compromise with the world's priorities and the world's values. Let's keep moving. The story continues five years later in Esther chapter three, as I mentioned. Before we do that, we notice at the end of Esther chapter two that there's this um, side comment or this side story that takes place. Mordecai uncovers this plot against Ahasuerus. He basically saves Ahasuerus's life in Esther chapter two. That'll come up later. At any rate, five years go by. Esther has been the queen now for five years. Ahasuerus promotes this man named Haman to be his second command of the entire empire. Let's pick up um, in verse one. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now significantly, what we see in chapter three is that Mordecai, who has no problem bowing to pagan Ahasuerus, actually has a significant problem with bowing to Haman. And we're told why in verse four. Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman because he is a Jew. And we might say, well, what does that have to do with anything? If the Jew has no problem bowing to the pagan Persian, why does he have a problem bowing to this pagan Haman? And the answer is actually found in verse one. This description here of Haman is Haman the Agagite. That word Agagite tells us a whole lot of what's going on here. This is a moment of spiritual awakening for Mordecai because of the word Agagite. Haman is a descendant of the Amalekite king Agag. You're like, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, we actually encountered Agag last year when we were going through 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15, King Saul is commanded by God to wipe out the Amalekites as this moment of judgment upon them for all of their wickedness. And he's supposed to wipe out their pagan king, Agag. And Saul refuses. He thinks, you know what, I know better than God here. Now, significantly, if you go back to Esther chapter 2, verse 5, when we're introduced to Mordecai, we notice that he's a descendant of Kish. Kish was Saul's father. So apparently, Mordecai is a long-descended relative of King Saul. 
And Mordecai has no qualms with ignoring his heritage when it comes to pagan Persians. And yet now, at last, he takes a stand because he remembers the stories of the Bible, the things that he's been grown up with. He's, he remembers the, the history of God's people, and he realizes now this is not just some foreign, distant, long-ago thing, but this is my story. I find myself right now living in the midst of the story of God. And my ancestor refused to obey God, and this Agagite now is the result of that. And so Mordecai finds himself in this moment where he says, I have to make a decision. I've been living this double life, this life of Persia on the outside and Jewishness on the inside, and now I have to decide. And he, res he refuses to bend the knee to this Amalekite. He's finally woken up to the spiritual vibrancy of following God. Now, if Ahasuerus was vain— and was concerned with his own glory, Haman might actually, if it's possible, be more concerned with those things. Mordecai refuses to bow, and that upsets, and that's not strong enough of a word, incenses Haman so much that rather than just having his revenge on him, he decides to wipe out the entire Jewish people. He decides, you know what, an appropriate response to this man not bending his knee to me is to commit genocide. And the shocking thing for us is that Ahasuerus just signs off on it. He's like, yeah, go ahead and do what, do what you want. You're, you're my number two. I, I trust you. And so this edict is sent out, picking a date about 10 months off in the distance where all of the Jewish people will be killed. And that's where we pick up in Esther chapter 4. Mordecai has gone through this spiritual crisis where he has to decide, am I going to continue to be a pagan or am I going to follow my God? And he chooses to follow his God. Now in Esther chapter 4, we find Esther in the exact same moment. Significantly, she isn't aware of the edict. At the end of chapter 3, we're told that all of Susa is thrown into confusion. So I, I think this again shows us how, how far gone, how, how compromised Esther is in this moment. She's not even aware of what's taking place. Esther at last has to reach a decision. Is she going to continue living as a pagan? All of this spiritual compromise, or is she at long last going to follow the God of her fathers? That's what we pick up in Esther chapter 4. Mordecai approaches Esther, says to her, hey, I, I need you to, to go and, and try to stop this thing before King Xerxes, and Esther's hesitant, and, and for good reason. It was Persian law in that day that if you were to go before the king without being summoned, then you would be put to death, unless he pardoned you by extending his scepter extending you an act of mercy. And so for Esther, this is to take a great risk. She says this, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Just picture Esther in this moment. She hasn't seen the king for a month. 
reading between the lines, it's all but guaranteed that Xerxes hasn't been alone for those 30 days. He's got a full harem. And Esther is probably wondering, have, have I fallen out of favor? Maybe he doesn't look at me the exact same way that he used to. Maybe I'm not actually on his good side. And so if Xerxes doesn't show me mercy, then Mordecai, you're actually asking me to go to my death. Pick up in verse 13. Then Mordecai told her or told them to reply to Esther, do you not think, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai's response is awesome. I, I love it here. He expresses a confidence that God is going to deliver his people with or without Esther's help. And the only reason or the only way he could reach this conclusion is if he was trusting in the promises of God that we see throughout the Old Testament. He knows that God has made these promises and that God's people will be safe, not because of anything except that God said they would. But the question is Esther. What about Esther? Because in this defining moment for Esther, as she has to decide, is she going to continue to, to hide her identity, allow the people of God to be slaughtered? If that's what she chooses, then this is like a conversion to full-on paganism. That she has completely cut herself off from the people of God, says, now I am a Persian through and through. And Mordecai says, if you do that, God's going to save his people still. But if you cut yourself off from the people of God, if you cut yourself off from the promises of God, there's no coming back from that. And God will save his people. But it's not going to include you, Esther. Mordecai has reached this defining moment in his life when he refuses to bow to the Amalekite. And now Esther has reached a similar defining moment of her faith. Is she going to fully assimilate to the pagan culture? Or is she going to declare her allegiance to the God of Israel? Verse 15, then, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. In the end, Esther realizes that she cannot continue to live two lives. Persian on the outside, embracing the culture on the outside, while still feigning some sort of connection to God on the inside. She has to choose the God of Israel or the gods of Persia. And in the end, she chooses the God of Israel, even if it means her death. As one pastor says, it's better to die being obedient than to live in disobedience. You know, here we catch another crucial reminder from Esther. Esther reminds us that obedience is ultimately a question of allegiance. 
It's about who holds your greatest allegiance. Your obedience or lack thereof to the Lord reveals who ultimately holds your heart, who ultimately holds your allegiance. Jesus actually says this to his disciples. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Have you, like Esther, like Mordecai, compromised with culture, with the God of of what makes me feel good? You know, just as, as Mordecai says to Esther, I think the Holy Spirit is saying to each of us as well, we can't continue playing both sides. We have to decide Our obedience is a declaration of allegiance. And the same thing about disobedience is a declaration of an altogether different type of allegiance. Where does our allegiance lie? Does it lie with the Lord Jesus? Or with the reigning God of our culture, the pleasures of self? You know, I I mentioned this is the defining moment here in Esther 4 for Esther because no matter what happens, she's made the decision. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. This is the defining moment of Esther's life. No matter what happens at this moment, we can say she is a hero of the faith. But just because it's the defining moment of Esther's life doesn't mean it's the defining moment of the chapter or of the story. The book of Esther continues and we see that even though Esther has a a defining role or a big part to play in the rest of the story, I think she actually fades into the background for the rest of the story as the main character takes center stage. Esther 5 tells us that she comes before the king after three days of fasting. This is fascinating. She won Ahasuerus' affections by showing herself to be the most beautiful of all these women. And now she comes before him frail, sickly, because she hasn't had food or water for three days. She's declaring her need for the Lord to come through for her rather than relying on her own ability, like we saw in Esther chapter two. And God indeed comes through for her, Ahasuerus allows her into his presence. I'm gonna skip a a lot of of what takes place here in in the, the invitations to these different banquets that take place. God is at work behind the scenes. One of the things that's so significant is that Haman, even though he's exalted in the kingdom, continues to just dwell on the disgrace that Mordecai has shown him. And he's so upset about this that actually the night before Esther makes this request of King Xerxes, he's actually planning with his family on how to kill Mordecai. And so they actually build this 75 foot tall stake on which to impale Mordecai. 
And he's going to ask the next morning Xerxes for permission to kill him. The key moment in the entire book is actually found at the beginning of of chapter 6. Notice this. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Here's the key moment in the entire book. For some reason, Xerxes can't sleep. That's the defining moment in the book. On that night, the king could not sleep. And notice how he spends his time. This man who has the world at his fingertips could have woken as many people as he wanted up out of bed. Come and perform a play for me. He has a harem of women at his disposal. He could have called for any number of them to come and join him. And yet for some reason, he calls for chronicles of his reign to be read to him. And it just so happens that one of the stories that is read to him is about Mordecai. And as he's hearing this story, Ahasuerus asks, you know, how did we reward this guy? Rewarding for Persian kings, rewarding those who who were loyal to them was very important. It shows, you know, it's always a good thing to help out the king. How did we reward this guy? And he finds out nothing has ever been done for him. As you read the book of, uh, or the chapter uh, of Esther chapter 6, it's, it's, it's comical because the long and short of it is Mordecai is honored. And Haman, the man who was planning to, to go before Xerxes to ask for permission to kill Mordecai, is forced to honor Mordecai instead. And there's this great reversal of fortunes here. Haman is humiliated Mordecai is exalted. And then in Esther chapter 7, Xerxes is receptive to the request of Esther. And it's because of the groundwork, the foundation that's been laid because of a sleepless night. Do you catch the significance of what's taking place here? You know, as you read the book of Esther, you'll notice that that God's name is not mentioned a single time. And that doesn't mean that God isn't at work. I mentioned that Esther takes a back seat after chapter four because the main character of the book steps center stage. That main character isn't mentioned once. It's the Lord who saves his people by working in imperceptible ways for their good. I think it's a really crucial reminder for us, a crucial lesson for us. Esther reminds us that God regularly uses the mundane, not just the miraculous, but the mundane for the good of his people. God's purposeful sovereignty, his providence, means that he can use a sleepless night from a king to be the defining moment in saving his people.
God can and does use miracles. We can read the book of Exodus and see the thunder and lightning, the the parting of the Red Sea. We can read the New Testament and see all of these stories. And and we might read those stories and be like, man, I wish God was at work today. The same way, all too often God is at work more like the book of Esther. Behind the scenes, using sleepless nights from pagan kings to accomplish his purposes and to accomplish good for his people. You ever consider that's, good, that's true of your life as well? Esther should, as we read it, instill a confidence within us that God is at work. Even in the mundane of our lives, for the good of his people. That he is fully committed to his glory, is fully committed to your good if you are one of his people. He has millions of ways that he is at work in the world through his providence, including sleepless nights, for your good. The rest of the book is, is, as they say, history. Esther 7, 8, 9, 10, we see God at work. He uses the obedience of his people to accomplish incredible good, the salvation of his people. And months later, not only did the Jewish people not experience genocide, they actually experienced more peace than they ever have before in exile because God has been at work. And as we come to, to the end of this story, I just want us to ask, not, not necessarily what is the overarching message of this book, but what's the overarching message of the life of Esther? When we look at Esther, the person, what can we learn from her? This woman who is, is torn between the allegiance to her God and the comforts of the world that she lives in, this, this world she grew up in. What can we learn from her If we were to land on just one truth, I think it would be this. Esther reminds us of God's unwavering grace. But more specifically, it reminds us of an unwavering grace of God for people who have abandoned him. You might be saying, well, how did Esther abandon God? There's not this moment where she turns her back on him. thousands of little moments in line with her culture until all of a sudden she finds herself for five years living as a pagan, hiding who she really is. And that doesn't disqualify her from God's grace. It doesn't disqualify her from being used by God either. You know, if you find yourself in a similar spot, in love with the gods of this present age, maybe you're in love a little too much with the idea of ease and leisure. Maybe you care a little bit too much about your right to the good life or to the American dream. If your decisions about finances and free time, about your weekends and your work, are all about what benefits me, 
What do I want? Rather than a heart of sacrifice that says, how can I serve the Lord and his people for God's glory and for their good? The good news of Esther is that God's unwavering grace remains. God is in the business of using broken vessels. People like Esther and people like us. Thank God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace of the gospel. That you do not give up on us when we love this world a little too much. Help us to declare our allegiance to you, Lord. To declare our allegiance by being obedient to you. Help us for Jesus' sake and for our good. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.